G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation to Visionathon today at vision.org.au. If God is so good and loving as it's often framed, why is there pain and suffering in the world? I'm really saying in so many words, He's clearly not good and loving. I think the immediate response is, when did you become the moral center of the universe? That's a question that's asked a lot. Pastor Greg Laurie says we should focus less on what we don't know about God and more on what we do know. We don't always know the answers. Why did God allow this to happen? We don't know. But here's what I do know. I know God is good. This is the day when the lost are found. we don't know about gravity, but we do know enough to say it's probably better not to fight against it or claim it doesn't exist. There are some people who find something quite mysterious about God and often question his motives and sometimes his very existence. We may not always understand the infinite mind of God, but today on A New Beginning, Pastor Greg Laurie tackles one of the most common questions people ask about the ways of God. You know, a Barna poll was conducted and the question was asked, if you could ask God one question and knew He would give you an answer, what would you ask? People said, we would want to know why is there pain and suffering in the world? In fact, often people will point to the problem of evil and suffering as a reason for not believing in God than any other. Listen, it's not merely a problem. It is the problem. Why does God allow tragedy. And if God can prevent such tragedies, why does He allow them to take place? And in the classic statement of the problem, it usually goes along these lines. Either God is all-powerful, but He's not all good, therefore He doesn't stop evil, or He's all good, but He's not all-powerful, therefore He can't stop evil. And the general tendency is to blame God for evil. We effectively transfer responsibility over to Him. But let's kind of back up a little bit and come back to that core question. If God is so good and loving, as it's often framed, why does He allow evil? Well, the first part of that question is based on a false premise. Because basically, I am the one now who will determine what goodness is. In fact, the very way I frame the question, I'm already sort of saying what I think, right? If God is so good and loving, why? I'm really saying in so many words, He's clearly not good and loving. Because if He was, He wouldn't allow this. So I'm already making a judgment of God. (laughs) I think the immediate response is, when did you become the moral center of the universe? You know, who are you or who am I to say what is good or what isn't good? And we have to go back to what we do know. Listen, when you don't 
know what's happening. Go back to what you do know. When our son died on a Thursday, I was in church the following Sunday. And I wasn't preaching, but I was attending. And so I sat there and people saw me in church and they saw my wife with me and they saw our son Jonathan. And they thought, you, they said, you are so courageous to be in church. You are such a model of faith. We can't, are you kidding me? I needed to be in church. I wasn't there because I was strong. I was there because I was weak. And I needed God. And I needed help. And I needed the Bible. And I needed worship. And I needed perspective. Because when you go through something like that, you know, you have so many questions swimming around in your head. And so we look to the Lord. So here's the bottom line. We don't always know the answers. Why did God allow this to happen? We don't know. But here's what I do know. I know God is good. I know God is good. And I know God is loving. And I know God loves me. Well, coming back to the question again, well, if God is good and loving, why did he allow that? Well, okay, first of all, let's, let's stop and think about this for a moment and understand God did not create evil. You know, God gave us a free will. And in the Garden of Eden, he allowed our first parents, Adam and Eve, to make a choice. He could have made them robots. He could have made them wind-up dolls. He could have made them to do whatever he wanted them to do. But he wanted us to follow him out of choice. But Adam and Eve sinned, and sin entered the world. And now we have the choice to do the right thing or the wrong thing. And so Evil people do evil things because they allow the devil to influence them. And I wish that wasn't the case. And I wish we lived in a pain-free world and a crime-free world and a sin-free world, but we don't. So remember, it's humanity, not God, that is responsible for sin. But here's the thing that we know as Christians. God can bring good despite the bad. Now sometimes Christians can be a little fast on the draw with Romans 8.28. And that's a great verse. For we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are the called according to His purpose. But let's not misunderstand Romans 8.28. It doesn't say we know that all things become good. It says all things work together for good because sometimes there are things that happen in life that are bad. They'll always be bad and they'll never stop being bad. So we don't have to say, well, God will make it a good thing. He never promised that. But He promised good can come despite the bad. And I think that's a very important distinction. But another thing that happens at a time like this is, well, people reevaluate their lives. You start thinking of eternity and you start thinking of things that really matter. And that is a good thing. Okay, so this man that we're gonna look at uh, committed the worst crime imaginable. He betrayed and sold out Jesus and he had a hand in the cold-blooded murder of the very Son of God. I'm talking about Judas Iscariot. Uh, and it's hard to believe that a man could do such a horrible thing. Yet, as we will discover, out of this act of pure evil, the greatest good came for all of humanity. Because though Judas betrayed Christ and it was his desire to stop the ministry of Jesus, in fact, he helped to fulfill the ministry of Jesus because Jesus had come expressly to this earth to voluntarily die on the cross for the sin of the world. So Judas didn't realize he was helping to fulfill God's plan, but indeed he was. But his very name is synonymous with evil and treachery. Judas is the traitor's 
traitor and his life ended miserably in suicide because he sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But you might be surprised to know there's more to Judas than you may realize. I think if we could go back in a sort of a time machine to the biblical days, imagine how cool that would be. Because you know, sometimes the question is asked if you could live in any other time in history, uh, when would you live? Well, you know, the most popular answer, by the way, is the 50s. Did you know that? And I kind of get that because things were kind of cool in the 50s. But, uh, but I would probably want to go about 2,000 years back. And I would like to be able to see Jesus Christ personally. And I would like to just kind of hang out there and watch those stories unfold. But it would be nice if I could bring some modern conveniences with me. You know, like uh, in and out Burger, <laughs> an iPhone. No, I don't know what I'd, I think it'd be great if there were no iPhones, honestly. Uh, or any phones of any kind. But anyway, uh, imagine what that would be like. And imagine if you actually approached Jesus and his disciples. There they are. There's the Lord. And, and you would be thinking, I wonder which one is Judas. And you'd probably be thinking, I bet he's wearing a black robe, you know. Everybody else has a white robe. He has a black robe. In fact, it's not a black robe. It's a black leather robe. And, and he has the collar turned up, motorcycle style. And he probably is wearing sunglasses before anyone even adds sunglasses. And you know, he's all tatted up, standing in the shadows, looking tough. That's Judas. And we sort of envision him as the bad guy. He was a bad guy. But actually he was the opposite of what I just described. You would not pick him out immediately as the evil one. In fact, you might even think he was the most virtuous of all the disciples. Say why? Because Judas was an amazing actor. He was really convincing. In fact, the only person he didn't convince was Christ himself. But Judas was putting on a, an amazing performance as a follower of Jesus Christ. And to the point, he was sort of religious outwardly. Don't forget, as we learned earlier, remember when Mary came and took that expensive perfume and, and poured it on the feet of Jesus and mopped his feet with her hair? And who spoke up? Judas. Well, this is wasteful. Why would you do this? This is worth around 30 grand. Could not this have been sold and the money given to the poor? And everyone was saying, yeah, that's that's true. Good point, Judas. What a good steward you are. But then John points out in his commentary in the gospel account of that story, this he said because he was greedy and was stealing the money himself. So things are not always as they appear. But at that moment, Judas put on a pretty good show. And there are people like this today in the church. You know, they talk the talk. They carry their Bibles. They sing their songs. They look like one of us. We think they're one of us. They might be sitting next to us. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're a believer. They may be what a hypocrite is. I don't think we understand what a hypocrite is because we throw the word around. And boy, people love to really call others hypocrites. You hypocrite. <laughs> you know, and what is a hypocrite? A hypocrite, we think, is someone who says they believe something and they do another. That's hypocrisy. No, it isn't. That's humanity. <laughs> How many of you have ever believed one thing and contradicted it by the way that you live? Raise your hand up. You hypocrites. <laughs> You're just people. You're messed up people like I messed up. And we all fall short of the glory of God. That's not hypocrisy. 
I'm not justifying contradicting what you say, but I'm saying it happens to all of us in one way, shape, or form. But that's not the technical definition of a hypocrite. And when Jesus called out the religious leaders as hypocrites, it had a simple meaning. It meant an actor. That was the translation of the word actor. It came from the word hypocrite. It just means a, one who's putting on a performance. And so that is the technical definition. A hypocrite and the way it's used by Christ is a person that pretends to be something they are not. Judas was a classic hypocrite. He pretended to be a follower of Jesus, but he really wasn't. Thanks for joining us on A New Beginning with Pastor Greg Laurie, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Riverside, California, USA. Today, Pastor Greg is tackling one of the toughest questions people often ask about God. Why does God allow evil? Let's continue. Here in John 13, the Lord's hour has come. Often he would say, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now his hour has come. The hour of his arrest, his suffering, his crucifixion, and his resurrection from the dead. We're about 15 to 18 hours away from the crucifixion of Christ here chronologically in John 13. And we're coming to the last Passover that Jesus would celebrate with his disciples. We get a closing glimpse of Judas as he slinks into the night with betrayal on his mind. We also get a somewhat comical look at Simon Peter and we get a better look at ourselves as we see what Jesus really wants for us. So let's read from John 13. I'm reading verses one to nine. And by the way, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. He got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. And when Jesus came to Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus said, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Then Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, not just my feet. Okay, we'll stop there. Verse one, what a powerful opening verse. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus, knowing his hour had come to leave this world, to return to his Father, he loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loves them to the very end. With Calvary closing in, and all the pressure it brought. This is such a touching picture of Christ. He's down on his hands and knees, washing their feet, loving them to the end. The disciples were alone with Jesus this night. The crowds are not present. And this is the Last Supper. Here's the problem. When we think of the Last Supper, we think of the painting by Leonardo da Vinci, the great painter. And in da Vinci's painting of 
the Last Supper, and he also painted Mona Lisa, of course, but in his painting of the Last Supper, it's, it's a long table, right? And everybody's seated behind the table. Jesus is in the middle, and they're kind of facing forward, kind of like they're posing for a selfie or something, right? So that's how we envision the Last Supper. Uh, a race that I did from your mind, that's not the way it looked. It would have been a low-slung table. They would have been sitting on pillows, probably reclining, and maybe in sort of a semi-circular fashion. And they would have various bits of bread uh, that they would dip in various kinds of sauces, sort of like chips and salsa, if you will. That's actually what it was like. And uh, so it was a very casual thing. Uh, they would eat olives, they would eat dates, they would eat bits of fish and so forth. And that's what a meal would look like. And a meal was long, it was leisurely, it wasn't formal with cutlery in front of you. You know, that's what you call it if you're from England, cutlery. And uh, no, it was very casual and relaxed and you would eat with your hands, you would share the food. So this is what a meal looked like. And this is what the Last Supper actually looked like. And Jesus now does something that shocks everyone. He, he gets out a basin of water and starts to wash their feet. Now this, by the way, was done customarily by the servant of the house. So when you would walk in wearing your sandals or whatever and you had all the dirt and dust all over your feet, the servant would come and wash your feet before you came into the house. But who is doing this? Not a servant, but Jesus himself washing their feet. You know, you wonder if as he was washing and drying them, if he was thinking of each one as he came to Andrew and Mark and he's washing and drying their feet and he's thinking, these precious feet will spread the gospel to the whole world because the Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. Then he came to the feet of Judas Iscariot and he thought, these feet will soon steal away in the dark. And by the way, if I was Jesus, I would not have washed the feet of Judas Iscariot. I would have broken the feet of Judas Iscariot. <laughs> oh yeah, you're gonna do this? Try it now, <laughs> like that, yeah. See how well you walk now, Mr. Betrayer, right? <laughs> but our Lord knew exactly what Judas was about to do. And then Peter, he's washing Peter's feet. I, I, I don't know why, but I think Peter's like, you know, size 13 or something. And Peter was so outspoken. That's why I like him so much, because you always knew where you stood with the big fishermen. There was no mystery to Peter. He was not a complex kind of a guy. He would just say what he was thinking in the moment. Some might even say he lacked a filter because he would just blurt things out. And so he, the Lord comes to his feet and Peter says, you can't wash my feet. Jesus says, buddy, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Well, then give me a bath right now. Hey, Peter, really? <laughs> That's why I said it was pretty much a comical moment. But why would Jesus even do this to start with? Well, he was demonstrating what he taught. He said, if you want to be greatest in the kingdom of God, learn to be the servant of all. Some important insights today from Pastor Greg Laurie in his message called, Why Does God Allow Evil? It's part of the series called Life from the Gospel of John. Next time on A New Beginning, Pastor Greg continues this study as we look at the life and sad example set by Judas Iscariot. Today's message from Pastor Greg Laurie was called Why Does God Allow Evil? 
If you'd like to listen again, just download the free Vision Christian Media app where it's available as a podcast. Or for a copy on CD, contact Vision Christian Store on 1800-00-5011 or online at visionstore.org.au. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.